This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons. Their faithful support allows us to continue the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are a small team composed of two families. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories, so we rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value the work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way to support Bodies Behind the Bus is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but has a tremendous impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. We are so excited for today's At the Bus Stop episode. It has been a long time coming. We are honored to have Lori and Jason Adams Brown join us and share a bit of their own story of abuse that happened under the leadership of Andy Wood during their time at Echo Church in the Bay Area. Since their time there, Andy has been hired as the new lead pastor of Saddleback Church. Yes, you heard that right, the Saddleback Church that was formerly pastored by Rick Warren. They have been bravely using their voices to raise awareness about the NDAs that keep fellow ECHO survivors from being able to share, as well as sounding the alarms to hopefully protect and prevent harm to the current staff at Saddleback, now that Andy is pastoring there. Do not miss out on today's show notes, where we have linked a petition for ECHO to release former staff from NDAs that we would love all of our listeners to go and sign articles highlighting their story, and a link to Lori's podcast, A World of Difference, where she and Jason do a deep dive into the details of their story. And with that, I'm Jonna Harris, and this is At the Bus Stop by the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. some super exciting guests today. It is my newer friends, Lori and Jason Adams Brown. And I am just so excited to introduce them to you guys, for you guys to hear their story and to hopefully be able to just partner with them in their push for justice and goodness in their own story and their own former church story. So with that, I want to introduce you guys a little bit. Lori has a podcast called A World of Difference, and it is so lovely. And they have actually documented their story, their long form. How many episodes was it? Six episodes. Episode 100 to 105. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is long form, but you get all the details there. So you're going to hear, it's like as if we did a story over six episodes instead of one or two. So you guys really get into the nitty gritty there of how everything unfolded. So if you're wanting that long form story, make sure you go over and subscribe and listen over there. But for today, we're just going to do like a flyby highlight version of it and then talk a little bit more about their push to end NDAs in their employees of their former workplace, their former church. Yeah. How about just trying to end NDAs altogether for churches and faith institutions because they're pointless and not needed and harmful and hurtful. So with that, I would love to hand it over to you guys a little bit and have you guys just share some of your story. Introduce yourselves, maybe introduce the church you're coming from and, and what positions you guys held, and then 
move us through a little bit of your story and how that unfolded and how you got to us today. I'll introduce myself first, and then I'm going to let Jason kind of hit the highlights of our story. I'm Lori Adams-Brown, as John mentioned, host of A World of Difference podcast. Would love for you to come by and join with your perspective and um, listen to the ones I bring on with my interviews. And then obviously my husband and I getting to share our story was really important for us. We really believe that survivors should be centered. And I just want to thank... um, this podcast and all the great work that you two are doing to center survivors. Um, I really do believe that listening to survivors, believing them, believing women in particular, I'm looking at you, my former SBC beloved community (laughs) and evangelical church in America in general, just struggling with, with believing survivors. And so thank you for the great work that you do here. Yes. My husband and I uh, came into this story, we came out of nowhere and it just really like, Many of us, we did not see it coming. So I'll let my husband kind of hit some of the highlights and, and we'll go from there. Yeah. So this is Jason Adams Brown, AKA Lori's husband. Yeah. So we came on staff at uh, Echo Church. Lori was the associate campus pastor of the Sunnyvale campus. I was the pastor of missions and church planting was our roles on staff. So mine was more of a central role of this four campus church and then Lori's was centered around a, a specific campus. So I we're probably going to skip a lot of stuff obviously, right? So like, as John has said, you guys can listen to the full uh, longer story. So I'm going to skip a lot of stuff from the first year. We may go back to a few phrases and things that we heard early on that were red flags and I wish that we had already thought about that at the time, but at the time we were just, you know, okay, we're new, we're trying to learn. But I I'm going to jump ahead to basically almost 1 year after we're on staff. During that whole year, you know, we really didn't question. We really didn't, you know, we just like, we're here as a learner. Um, We've been missionaries overseas for over 20 years. Uh, We have not had an experience working at a church. And so we really want to learn and and be open to that. We've learned that a lot in going to different cultures. So I, I would say this is the start of the downfall of us getting the point of being fired. Uh, we, Lori and I had finally been asked to be on their strategic leadership team. We foolishly thought that it was all the, those words, that it was going to be about strategy, that it was going to be we were part of a leadership team and that it was actually a team, uh, when in actuality, it really was just a uh, a place where you report the different things that you're doing, but really it had nothing to do with leadership or strategy or, or teaming together or any of that. So. Uh, but we foolishly thought, hey, this is the place where we're, you know, we finally have been here a year. We can probably question some stuff. So Andy got up and and shared uh, some strategy moving forward. Um, and Lori, uh, unfortunately, thought, uh, OK, this is a space where I can push back and ask questions. And so, you know, she very respectfully kind of pushed back on something Andy said and asked questions around it. And you could just tell immediately that he was very uncomfortable and angry. It was after that we realized that something's not right here. Maybe he's just in a, not in a good headspace or whatever. But even as he left that meeting, you know, he said to another one of the pastors, hey, what was Lori trying to do in there? And the pastor was like, well, she was just trying to ask a question. Like, I don't understand. So, but Lori could tell right off the bat that she'd done something that really upset him. And so uh, we hung out with him a week later because we had done that with his family fairly often. Uh, we were good friends with the whole family, uh, our kids with their kids. We're in a park and Lori tries to apologize and just says, hey, you know, I could tell in that meeting that whatever I'd said would really upset you. And I just wanted to say, I'm so sorry. Like, I that was not my intent. 
I can't remember all the words that she said, but he said, his response was, we are not going to talk about this in front of my kids. So he was still upset. To fast forward, Lori two or three other times tried to apologize and he never, ever said, hey, I accept your apology or explained, you know, why that bothered him and all that kind of stuff. And so that led to over the next few months, Lori being brought into Andy's office, being basically this kind of like rapid fire questions interrogation that she didn't really understand, like, what the heck is the, is the purpose of these meetings? And it would just be like random stuff like, hey, what's your view uh, on abortion? Uh, what do you believe about critical race theory? And it was like these really big topics that you couldn't answer with any sort of nuance or anything. It all had to be like this, you know, I don't know, like something you put on a, on a napkin or a poster or something, you know, he just, it was just bizarre. But it's clear after these interrogation meetings, Lori is like, gosh, it's just not working. Like, like it's fine. It's no big deal. I should just look at something else. Um, well, the executive pastor, Felipe, got kind of wind that she could be considering something else. And so he calls her, you know, after a bunch of these meetings and stuff. And so he says, hey, look, I, I understand that you, you know, are kind of considering, you know, leaving Echo, but hey, we really need you. And there was a bunch of stuff in this conversation that he said, because he was trying to convince Lori to stay. A couple of odd things that he said in that call was, hey, you know, he gave a history of people who had had conflict with Andy. And he was saying, uh, you know, there's been people on staff that like, you know, for a whole year, I had to supervise them because Andy just couldn't be around them. And there was, you know, there was even one person currently in a high level leadership position where Felipe was like, I had to supervise them for a whole year. And he shared a lot more in that phone call. But for the again, you can hear the the long version uh, on, on the other podcast. But Lori was like, you know, there looks like there's a common denominator here, and that's Andy. Like, why don't we just like, why why can't we just focus on him getting healthy, and then we wouldn't have as many problems? And Felipe was just like, no, 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 that's not how this is gonna, that's not how we do it, something like that. I have a question, real quick. Were the other people that he was listing off all women, or was it just like broad spectrum no. has a problem with everybody? It wasn't all, it wasn't by no means all women, but wouldn't you say, Lori, the majority were women? The majority were women. I, he does. It was a shock to me because I was brought in as the second woman pastor and it was a huge deal when they had the first woman pastor who was somebody I had known, uh, had met her on one of our kind of furlough times. And she had come to Singapore on a trip that Echo Church sent to us as we were missionaries in Singapore. And so when they brought her in as the first woman pastor. They made this huge deal out of it at the 10th anniversary. And when I was brought in, you know, the assumption was this is an egalitarian church. And then once I got in and I was in these interrogation meetings, I started to realize, oh, Andy's a complementarian. And so why do we have women pastors? It was a lot of just image and it was very confusing, but there's a lot of tone policing of women. There's a lot of I was told I was hired because I don't cry. He can't handle women crying around him. He's very quick with his emotions, like anger, or um, he somehow can manage to cry in a sermon at the right moments. But he, there's some wonderful women he couldn't be around because they would cry. So that he does have some, I, I feel like it's very unhealthy. And I was trying to figure out a way to help him as a brother. And I think, Jason, that was our heart, is something is clearly not right. But he does have, you know, authority issues, I think, around anybody over time. And that'll, yeah, that'll be clear as Jason finishes his story. Yeah, definitely some difference around women, 
but not exclusively women that he has abused. Was your initial question to him, was it like something in regards to like, you disagree with wearing skinny jeans on stage or <laughs> that he's not allowed to, like he needs to, he can't have black coffee, he should put creamer in it. Was it that simplistic or? I mean, I would be willing to throw hands over the coffee thing, yeah. but <laughs> just kidding. <Okay. laughs> no, it was not. It was very, um, it was like, if you listen to the podcast, you go into more detail, but it was like opening up the campuses post, uh, like this was like okay. summer 2020. We had shut down in Santa Clara County. Our county was the first county in the U.S. to shut down. We have multi-generational housing here, small houses, Silicon Valley is expensive. And the spread of COVID was a very big danger in this densely urban environment. It would have spread like wildfire had we not shut down soon. And um, in order to protect our community, Dr. Sarah Cody was, you know, trying to keep us shut down. And this was June, July-ish 2020 when he came in saying, hey, we're going to open the campuses. And it wasn't clear we were able to really do that. There were a lot of questions of everybody on staff. Also, we were very burnt out because as soon as COVID hit, the first meeting Andy had with us on Zoom was basically saying, everybody better be working or you're going to get fired. So we just, we didn't have this lazy pajama day situation. We were like intense as soon as COVID hit. And so we were between March and this June, July-ish period. We, I mean, almost everybody I knew on staff, especially the moms who were all homeschooling our kids, which ended up lasting a year and a half, we were really spent. So for him to come in and say, oh, I'm giving you all this extra work, same same car of digital car, same speed, no slowing down, and add an in-person socially distanced outdoor services with probably no volunteers willing to help you bring all the equipment outdoors and do a full-on, not like an acoustic version, like like I'm thinking 12 hours on a Sunday. All of us had questions around how is it possible to what he was saying, drive two cars, which I still don't understand the metaphor. Like, how is it possible to drive two cars? That was my question. I don't get the metaphor at all. Unless they're Teslas. Can you maybe drive two Teslas? I <laughs> don't know. So. Well, I think that was the biggest thing at the end of that was ref we reflected back. Like there, there's a thousand different responses that he could have given that we would have been like, okay, let's just move on and figure out how we're going to do this. Like if he had said, I understand that like there may be some responsibilities we've got to cut back on so that we can actually do this. Or, hey, I don't have it all figured out. I think this is the direction we need to go for us as a church and to serve the community, let's keep talking. I mean, there's just so many different things a good leader could have said in those moments, as opposed to feeling so defensive and insecure. And, but that's, that's the pattern that we've seen for, for Andy. Um, and I say that with compassion, everything I've read about narcissists um, really helps me understand better this inability to deal with the insecurities that he's got internally, that he has to build out this confident exterior. Anybody who pushes against that, um, he has to figure out what's wrong with them because he can't, he's not able to look at himself in those contexts. And which again, I say that with compassion, like I actually still love the guy and, and hope the best for him anyway, but jumping back to the, I don't know, I was going to jump back to the other thing and try to close out yeah. and go to the yeah. next thing. Um, yeah. So at the end of that phone call, uh, basically they had decided Lori was going to shift out of the associate campus pastor role and take on a role as uh, outreach um, which after being on at the church for a while, we realized that's not, Andy's not, he doesn't really care much about outreach or the community and that kind of stuff. It's more about how are you building the Sunday worship experience and stuff. And so that would put him away from her, away from Andy and more where Felipe could. So it's the same pattern. Felipe is going to take her on as, as a way to help uh, manage that, protect her and also just probably see if he could manage her back to be able to be back in Andy's presence. 
It sounds like he's like the like guy that like builds the fence around Andy. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We've also had some guests explain it like there's like an electric fence that was built around the pastor. Like you can't question them. It's basically just there. there's a zone that you cannot penetrate. And if you penetrate that, you're going to get zapped. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So fast forwarding to December, uh, that call was, I think, in o- late October or something like that. Um, and so fast forward to December. Um and Lori's not heard any more about this new role that she's supposed to be taking on. There's a lot going around around about the campus, but again, I'll save that for the long version. But the big one was this meeting in December where it was very sudden. It just showed up in Lori's calendar and it was a meeting with her and Felipe on Zoom. And it said, your 2021 role. And so she's like, oh, great. We're going to be talking about our 2020 role. But it was kind of weird because it's like right before Christmas, which everybody knows at big churches like this, Christmas time is like nuts. It's in that whole week is just the first two weeks are just insane. But this shows up on her and she's like, okay, well, great. We're going to be starting to talk about my 2020 role. And so she uh, jumped on the Zoom call. She just happened to be working from the office that day. Uh, and Felipe doesn't show up. She goes and, and um, uh, sees Felipe and he's like, oh, no, no, it's not on Zoom. It's actually with Pastor Andy in his office and myself. And Lori's like, wait, what? Like the last time she talked to Felipe was like where they were trying to get her not around Andy. So she's just already the in, in, the um, intensity and fear goes up in her. There was a lot of things that happened in that meeting. Uh, later, we were able to find out a number of the things that they were accusing Lori of in that meeting were not even true. Some of the things were misperceptions of something Lori had said and Andy you know, took it as a, because he's insecure, he took it as a critical thing against him, which she wasn't saying anything critical against him, but she couldn't in the meeting, like she could never say, like when she would say like, no, that's not what I meant at all. I'm so sorry. Like, it wasn't like her perspective was ever correct. His perception was correct. And therefore, so she just realized this is like, this isn't safe, but Lori is like an Enneagram eight. She's staying calm. She's not affected. Uh, but internally the fear was rising in her and she eventually at one point in that meeting had like an out of body experience because and a therapist helped her understand that she was experiencing trauma. She could tell she felt so unsafe in that meeting. She comes home after that. Again, I'm skipping tons of detail. She comes home after that. Do you want to ask a question, Jonna? No, I just, I, I, I hate that for you. And I feel like it's just a common. It's so common. It's so common. I th- I'm thinking through, I mean, I've had that experience, but I'm also even, I'm hearing Nicole's story so much when I hear that part of your story. I don't know if you guys have been able to hear her episode, but she's just like, it, basically, I mean, you're disassociating. You're just like, all right. But, and I think so many of us, male or female, like when you get to that point, you just, it's your heads down and you just whatever I have to do to survive this moment, I'm going to do. And so I'm just going to let you say whatever you need to say. I'm going to agree with whatever you say. Just get me out of here. Like, yes, I am everything that you're saying right now. Do you remember that conversation at all, Lori? Like, do you remember anything he asked you or did oh, you, yeah. were you kind of blacked out from it or? Yeah, no, I just, I definitely remember it. Um, So I think there's different kinds of dissociation, but um, and I, now I know through the great therapists, thank God for good therapists and DBT therapy, especially has really helped me 
you know, connect back with my body and for my body to feel safe. And I have to regularly do those practices. They've been very helpful just to put into my life and, you know, in a spiritual practice as well. And it was one of those things like I just didn't feel safe to stay in my body, but I was still aware of everything being asked and was a, I was responding, not in anger. I don't, I'm not a a person who I'm pretty level when it comes to my emotions. I mean, like I said, it's one of the reasons I was hired, right? But, you know, the questions were, why are you so frustrated? Which was so confusing because I thought, wait, this is like a few days before Christmas. This meeting is a huge deal. And you just asked me about how I'm feeling, but I'm not feeling frustrated. I just am sitting here with my notebook trying to take notes about my 2021 role, which I've been waiting for months to find out what it is. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was not frustrated. So it was just a lot of gaslighting from the beginning, like putting in my head that I'm frustrated when I'm not. And then now I know I had a dissociative experience because I had been in that same exact office multiple times being peppered with questions and it wasn't safe. So now I understand my autonomic nervous system was not feeling safe and God made my body to react in the way that it did. So it reacted in exactly the way God has trained my body to react in all of our bodies. She did not feel safe for very obvious reasons that I had not been safe to give my answers for myself. And it was emotionally abusive and psychologically abusive and spiritually abusive. This is a pastor. I'm a pastor. This is a church and his office, you know, so by the time I'm getting to this and I was supposed to be protected by good cop and suddenly good cop leads me into bad cop's office and I'm in a den of wolves and they are devouring me. And it's very clear that's what's happening from the moment it started. So yeah, why are you so frustrated? Why are you so frustrated about women? What is the wound that makes you want to talk about women? That question was asked three times in a row, even though I said I didn't have one. And this is not a therapy session. This is not safe. Why are you so frustrated about COVID? Why did you tell Pastor Lucille to speak up more? Well, you really pushed her. And that was so gaslighting. Or, you know, are kind of like accusations that I was trying to steal Andy's pulpit, basically. And I thought he was a bad preacher. And all this insecurity and pride mixed together. He was just getting more and more angry when I didn't react in an angry way. It was like I wasn't giving him the cathartic response to try to push my buttons and find my wound. So they are, they're on a wound hunt and that's clear in their pattern. Um, and they were wound hunting for me for a while and observing me and they thought they had nailed my wound. And in fact, they hadn't. But now they call me wounded, right? They gave me a wound. And I don't even like using that word because it's so triggering the way they used it, but they did injure me. Um, and I still have the scar, but it's like you punch somebody in the face and then you say, hey, everybody, look, she's wounded. So don't listen to anything she has to say. I didn't actually abuse her, but it's like, wait, she's got a black eye. <laughs> so now the phrase is I'm wounded and therefore they shouldn't listen to anything I say, but it's like, well, you're the one that injured me. So shouldn't I get to say as a victim of this situation, what happened? But it's a, it's a great way to discredit whistleblowers. So anyway, I'll let Jason get back to the story. So, so she comes home and shares uh, what happened and needless to say, like I was, I was livid. Like I was furious that what was really upsetting to me was these things that they were saying about Lori, the questions they were asking were painting her in a light that was the exact opposite of the type of person that she is. And that's what was making me so angry. And so I reached out and set up another meeting, which, you know, graciously during that busy week, they, they set it up. And again, long version of that, you can see on the other podcast, but it's, uh, I got in there and super nervous 
still thinking these are friends. These are guys that actually care about us and that are pastoral. And I was still in that frame of mind. But in that meeting, like literally when I started off for the first 30 seconds or so, Andy is trying not to laugh. He can tell I'm upset. And like, you know, now we know he's getting his cathartic experience because he's realizing, oh, I did affect Lori because now Jason's like this. And so he's he's like trying to cover his mouth to hide the fact that he's trying not to laugh. And he ends up putting his his mask back on because he just couldn't stop, which obviously that sets the tone for the whole meeting where I'm like, what in the world is going on? But it was clear uh, like in that meeting that anything I said they weren't listening to, they would redirect, they would go into these long stories of how they had uh, worked on different people on staff and changed them and made them effective for the church and all this sort of stuff, you know, it, basically saying this is what we're trying to do with Lori is change her and that kind of stuff. And I mean, I just left that meeting like I'm, I'm a grown man and I just felt so small questioning what is wrong with me? Like I'm just like internally like thinking something's wrong with me. Like I it was just it was horrible. It was horrible. So but kind of came out of that meeting just thinking, all right, this either we're going to figure out if we need to stay. If so, we just got to agree to disagree on some stuff. Um, a number a number of other things happened, but Fast forward to February 25th, the experience from then until February, uh, Lori had just come to terms with, I've got to leave. There were just a number of other things that happened that she's just like, I got to try to find another job. But I was still naively thinking, hey, maybe I could stay. I actually really enjoy some of the things I'm doing with missions and church planting. Um, but February 25th, uh, during my quiet time, I was reading in uh, the book of John, and it was all about talking about how if you love your brothers, if you love me, you'll you'll you know love uh, others, right? And so, what is it? John fourteen seventeen. I used to could say this right off my hand, but my mind's going blank. But if you love me, you'll obey my commands. That's what it was, and the command is that you love one another. And so, I clearly felt the Holy Spirit prompting me, like, hey, if you love these brothers well, you can't just try to figure out if you could stay. You've got to share with them. You're seeing things that are wrong. And it may be some of that's in you and that's okay. It's changing for both of you. Like I still was not under any like, oh, this is all them. Maybe there's some things in me, that kind of stuff. And so I set up a phone call with, with uh, Felipe and shared some of my concerns. And one of them that was in there, I was like, hey, and I feel like that meeting with Lori in December was abusive. And he said a number of things back, but the key phrase that he said after that was, well, if you think we abused your wife, we're just going to have to help get you guys to something else which translation was, if you think that, then we're just gonna have to fire you. That's really what he's saying. I get off that call, I'm like in shock. Uh, other other friends of mine have been like, hey, what did you think was gonna happen? And I was like, I thought these were good pastors that were gonna go, hey, we don't see it your way, but hey, we take this seriously. Let's begin to walk through this because it could be development for both of us. Like that's, I, honestly, that's what I still thought was gonna happen. And I was just in shock that it wasn't. Uh, that was February 25th. Uh, less that was a Thursday, the following Wednesday, we're sitting in their office being offered an NDA tied to severance less than a week later. And in that meeting, just to kind of highlight some things about NDA, so I know we're going to talk some about that, but you know, when they were offering the document and walking through it, Lori said, is this an NDA? They said, oh, no, no, this is not an NDA. This is just a common thing we do with our employees. And so I asked the question, I said, well, if we sign this, does that mean if other people come forward saying they've had this similar experience with Andy, that they, that we can't add our experience to that story. And Felipe says, well, if you did that, we could sue you, but we don't sue. So you could still sign it. So that led into a lot of other stuff, but that at least gives you kind of like the overall highlight picture. Uh, a lot more happened after that. And you, you can hear some of that in the long version. Spoiler, you didn't <laughs> sign it. 
right? Yes. We didn't sign the initial one. They later, after I reported to their board, after a lot of back and forth, they did change it to where it said um, we could not, it was no longer an NDA. And they said we could not sue them or benefit financially from any future lawsuit, which was bizarre to me that that was one of their concerns that we could benefit from other lawsuits because they know there's all kinds of people that they've abused and hurt and lots of people that are just trying to get on with their lives. But they have they have this intense fear that it's going to happen one day. Well, I mean, technically, there's enough of you. Yeah. Oh, I know. Exactly. Their severance it, was don't sue us. Yeah, the severance agreement. But I mean, we lived pretty much an entire month thinking we are not going to have insurance for our family. It's COVID. Mm-hmm. It's still shut down. We're in online school still with our kids. We've just moved here from Singapore. Our entire network pretty much is this church, and we can't really rely on any of them because they've been, we know they're lying about us to other people. That's what they do. We've seen it. And our friends were coming to us saying, hey, guess what? They're lying to you. They're getting staff together. They're getting volunteers together to spread these things that aren't true to discredit you as whistleblowers. And and so we lived for like a really very difficult <laughs> month where we had trouble eating. We had trouble sleeping. It was very traumatic. And saying no to that NDA was the hardest thing, you know, because I mean, you have kids, right? I mean, this is, we didn't know how it was going to turn out, but we just knew you don't get to take our story. We were, we fully were confident we weren't the only ones because it became so clear. This was a professional playbook. It was like, we were playing a game and we didn't know we were in a game that they knew the rules. They had written the playbook and we were somehow chess pieces being moved. Like that just became really clear when the NDA, by the time we were given the NDA. So when we reported to the board, as Jason said, they kind of got together and came back and said, hey, we want your family to have severance. And this is after like, you know, a month of all this, but would you be willing to sign just this one thing that says you won't pursue a lawsuit or financially benefit? That's basically what it said. But it also meant they couldn't sue us for speaking out. We didn't realize that in the beginning. So in a way, it was good, right? But we realized at that moment, wow, that's the one hill they're willing to die on. There are so many stories. Like at that moment, we just knew if this is it, they know. And now we know after going- That you could sue them. They knew you could sue them. Well, and we know that we weren't the only ones by far. And having spoken out to the press eventually after the whole- Andy Wood got hired at Saddleback Church to replace Rick Warren. A a year later, we decided, we tried some back channels and there's a lot we can't say because people we spoke to in confidence that are in Saddleback or were at the time, but it was not the official channels. Like whatever you're reading in the news, Vanderblom and all that stuff, like that's not what we're talking about. There were people that were trying to do the right thing and we were trying to help Andy save face, get his family and him help. That was our heart was for this to just all stop so Andy could get help. It's what we'd been asking Echo for was get him to Dr. Diane Lamberg, Dr. Chuck DeGroat, somebody that can help him and Felipe get healthy. They're very, very unhealthy. And we don't say that to discredit his statements, but we say that because it was not a secret on the staff. We all saw that if we're willing to admit it, and many were, and all of the victims um, of his abuse, him and Aunt, him and Felipe together, have become clear because once we spoke out to Julie Royce and Bob Smiatana at Religion News Service, we I was getting contacted by people all over the United States, D.C., Washington State, former church in Texas, three stories came to me from there, some of his friends from college. I've met people that knew him in high school now that have come up to me after I've spoken at play. It's just, it's insane the pattern and who 
he is and the unhealth he's carried, I don't know how long. And we say this, as Jason said, out of compassion and love, because when you see a brother that struggles with addiction of any kind, and I would say he's addicted to power on a certain level, and then you give them and enable them by giving them the very thing they're addicted to, aka power over 20,000 people at Saddleback, including you know, the Philippines and Hong Kong and the, wherever their campuses are, it's not, I would never give an alcoholic brother a beer and to have given a man who abuses power and struggles with it, an enormous amount of power is not good for him or any of us. And so that's part of why we speak out is to set captives free, including Andy. So horrific. And I can't even imagine, I can kind of imagine actually that feeling that you have just knowing like, oh, there's people on his staff right now going through this. It feels really hopeless a little bit. I don't know if that resonates with you guys. Like just knowing like this person's still pastoring and still, I'm using air quotes, shepherding (laughs) staff Mm -hmm. and churches and he's destroying lives like there's no way and if he's even been able to keep it together this long there's no way the cracks aren't starting to form real soon and my heart just breaks for you guys because that's heavy to carry and it breaks for anybody that's on staff over there or in leadership positions it's so scary to speak up. And now, like, he he was already kind of, um, like, a, a big deal at Echo, right? And now it, it's, like, coming against, like, a senator or something. Saddleback is huge. Yeah. So speaking out at this point is just, it's so costly. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm just heartbroken about the whole situation. I'm heartbroken that he was able to continue pastoring. I am heartbroken. Jay and I have talked a lot about church staffing firms and how grossed out we are by them in general at this point. We, it's so corrupt. I think actually I would love if you would take like just like two minutes and explain the investigation that supposedly happened for our listeners. (laughs) Supposedly. (laughs) Yeah. This was the investigation to, on the allegations of Andy before he went to Saddleback, correct? Yes. And if it's, it would be very confusing if you just read the articles being put out, because as you may well know, it's really what's going on behind the scenes. Like, uh, you know, Jason, one of his great friends from high school and um, has worked in DC for a long time. He's like, it's never the event. It's the cover up, right? It's like, that's what's happening with this. And so, yeah, Vandra Bloman was the hiring agency that brought Andy to Saddleback. And then They didn't reach out to any of the many survivors. You know, basic vetting would say reach out to one or two former employees. But definitely you want to do a – all former employees should have a chance to speak into something of this magnitude, of Saddleback. You would think that that vetting would have been – but my, you know, experience in the SBC in general, once again, much love for the people who raised me and nurtured me and taught me to love Jesus and all of it. So much good and nuance here. But as we can see, the Department of Justice is having to get involved because the practices have not been put in place. And the good old boy club is a real thing. And scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Oh, wait, I may have some whistleblowers against me. So I'm just going to help you cover up because I'm sure you're a good guy. All of these things are happening all the time. Betrayal blindness is a real thing. Vander Bloman is who brought Andy to Saddleback. And, you know, one of the weird things about speaking out about this is then I start getting people contacting me about William Vanderblom. And I'm like, I don't need to know about William Vanderblom. But like, you know, here's there's just things <laughs> in his, you can Google it all yourself. Yeah. Like there's there's some crazy things about how he was a pastor and he started this thing and the circumstances surrounding that. And so 
there's just a lot behind the curtain on these situations. And so that's the agency that was used. And none of us that I know of personally were reached out to any of the former employees just to be like, hey, why'd you leave? You know, what happened? You know, do you have anything good or bad to say? Like anything. It came to light after it was announced that he was pastor, that there were allegations of abuse. And therefore, Vanderblomen had to do some image management, and so did Saddleback. Vanderblomen, of course, wants their money for the guy they've brought. And it's already like, here he is. It wasn't like, we're about to hire this guy. It's like, we've hired him. And then therefore, the stuff starts to come out because nobody was asked. I mean, my phone was blowing up the day it was announced. I was trying to go to my eighth grade twins graduation. And the next day was my 12th grade son's graduation from high school. My family was here. It was a big time for us. And my phone's blowing up with like questions about, oh my gosh, like, do you have any statements? And I'm getting contacted by reporters and I don't want to give any statements. I was not, not, I just wanted to move on with my life. Like most of the survivors of abuse at Echo Church that I know. Once it kind of came out publicly through social media and different things, then Saddleback and Vanderblumen have a choice of how they're going to handle it. And what they chose to do is what we've seen, unfortunately, more than once in mega church and certain circles, which is spin it, cover it up, make it go away. And there are some pretty genius ways to do that if you know how to play the game, which is discredit the whistleblowers. And that's so easy to do by saying they're unhealthy or disgruntled. And if it's a woman, our culture does that very, very easily um, because we don't prefer to listen to women's voices. I understand because I've fallen for that Kool-Aid in the past as well, but um, very easy to discredit whistleblowers. So even very recently that Ministry Watch did an article with uh, Rick Warren. I have people at Saddleback that private message me that have either chosen to stay or have left once Andy Wood came because it's just the nature of being a whistleblower. People reach out to me and want to tell me their stories and I hold them in my heart and I don't share them, right? They're their stories. But somebody sent me this article with Ministry Watch where they interviewed Rick Warren a few weeks ago. None of us survivors from Echo were contacted. And the quote was something like, uh, conflict is not abuse. Disappointment is not abuse. Disagreement is not abuse. I wholeheartedly agree. And those things were all in my story, but there was also belittling, intimidation, coercion, gaslighting, isolating, silencing, you know, intentionally disinviting, that kind of thing. And so, and that is abusive psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. And there was some financial abuse in our case and in other cases. So, yeah, basically, Vanderblomen was investigating themselves, which we call a faux investigation, that they were not. They're not Grace Ministries with Boz Tavijan or Diane Lambert. Nobody in the, you know, they did not bring in Wade Mullen, which is all the steps you would do. They did not do that. They got the hiring agency to decide, hey, did this guy, Andy, that we brought to Saddleback, is he a good candidate or not? Well, guess what? He is. Wonderful. We have cleared him. And um, they got Gail, who's this woman that they ha they say is a CIA-trained investigator who works for Vanderblumen, was assigned the task of investigating. We went to London and Scotland for our 25th anniversary. I was like, I do not want to be bothered. I was still being reached out to the whole time. But Gail was not reaching out to me. I had received Gail's number through like another source. And they said, hey, there's this number if you want to contact this person. But it was not directly from her or Vanderblumen itself. And so I was like, you know, I'll just send it to the survivors I know and see if they want to speak. So I was basically doing her job for her. She was not reaching out to people. I was like, hey, here's her number. You want to contact her? Like they were not proactive. If this was a CIA trained investigation, it was really not. 
not doing a very good job. No murders are ever solved. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Guess what? We're perfect. Um, so yeah, basically we, I read in the news from like London when we were there in June last year that they had supposedly reached out to this former employee that was speaking out on social media because I had tweeted something about it without naming Saddleback or Andy. And I was like, wait, are they talking about me? They haven't reached out to me. Oh, and Andy has shown videos to the elders of this individual. And I found out later they had been videoing me. And I didn't know that. And he was showing videos of me. That's why they didn't want you to sue them. That's so illegal. I know this Mm -hmm. because I also was a California employee that was being recorded without my permission. I found out later from other employees that have left they had audio recordings of it. There were like hidden microphones in the North campus where I didn't even know. And like they were listening in on our conversations. It's, it's, it's very in line, checks out with like a narcissistic behavior, but it's still kind of creepy and has caused a lot of us to be in therapy for just that. Oh my gosh, am I being watched and listened to? It's like, it's a horrible feeling, right? Like it's my house, but you've been to my house. Just even that, if you were a church and like, I mean, I'm sure churches know like how the local laws, like that would be a super red flag for me to be like, oh, you were videotaping people? Like, that's really suspicious. Like, that yeah. would freak me out if I was a church. Absolutely. I wouldn't want anything to do with that. No. And why would Saddleback want to hire a guy who'd done all that yeah. and is showing that to the elders? Like, is no, yeah, like, oh, I'm just like, is no one questioning? proof I'm not creepy. I videotaped I people. <laughs> right. And it's like, I don't know what they're saying, but I've not been able to watch those videos. Julie Roy's asked for access to them. They wouldn't give it to her. So why do they not let us watch it? Or are they editing things and taking it out of context, what I'm doing? Or is it proof that he never physically or sexually abused me, which I've never claimed he did? Abuse has many forms. Um, psychological abuse, especially if you have a video of me and there's no audio, you'd have no idea I was being psychologically abused. I'm not a person who's going to show facial reactions that's going to make you think, because I just am pretty like level, you know? Especially if the video is from the back of his head and all you see is my face. Like, I don't I don't know what the context is, but I just know that I was not asked. And we're in a two-party consent state when it comes to video and audio. So, yeah. Anyway, Vander Bloman's faux investigation resulted in, guess what? Da-da-da-da, shocking. He's cleared. And actually, they were saying he's cleared before they actually talked to any of us. And they said, oh, guess what? We did an investigation. We cleared him. So if you look at the timeline, which Julie Royce tried to point out, They were coming out saying, oh, look, there's all this stuff in social media. Guess what? We've cleared him. And later, like 20 plus stories came to them that we know of that we don't know what happened to them. We don't know if the elders ever heard about those. We don't know what Gail did with them. We don't know if they edited anything we said. We never spoke to the elders and we never spoke to Rick Warren. I don't think it probably would have been safe to do that. As a whistleblower, I have to protect myself too from being in situations where I'm going to be you know, re-traumatized, re-injured, and I need to have trauma-informed people around listening to my story. So yeah, that's how they sort of covered all that up and said, guess what? He's fine. So Ministry Watch's most recent article was saying, Rick Warren said, oh, we, I can't remember, some like seven or eight levels of vetting that they did of Andy and Stacy. And I'm thinking, and if that's true, all of your levels of vetting did not involve the most basic of things, which is to reach out to former employees that have worked under a man who's been accused of abuse of power. Like that just should be like step one. And as far as I know, that was never done. And we know of like, I think Lori said this, but it was like, we know of more than 20 people who reached out to Vanderbilt to share our stories. And just to be clear, like our story is not one of the worst. There are many of them that are far, far worse over many more years than ours. 
which is one of the reasons why we felt so strongly that we 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 can't not speak up. One, we're we're older than a lot of the ones that were uh, abused. A lot of them were by themselves. They didn't have a you know a spouse that was with them, both on staff. Didn't have decades of ministry experience and all of that. And so for Lori and I being able to do this together, already having a lot of ministry experience, recognizing these things, we felt like we could not not speak up. You had the wherewithal to like be able to say, question your NDA and stuff. Like a lot of people don't have that. You don't have someone to bounce this off of. Like um, Robert in his episode that he came on and talked about NDAs with us, he talked about like being kind of like under duress basically in that moment. And like that that can actually void your whole NDA if if you were forced to sign it in that type of a setting. And a lot of people just don't know that. And so, I mean, so many people like you're explaining right now, those are, those are like right, completely vulnerable in that setting to be, I'll sign whatever you want. Lori had just finished reading A Church Called Tove and interviewed Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger. In fact, the day they fired us was the day her episode dropped of her oh, interview oh, with them, crazy. which was that. fascinating and so prophetic. But that's why we understood a lot of these tactics is because Lori had read that book. She knew they would offer an NDA. I was like super naive and like thinking, oh my gosh, I, you know, this isn't what's happening. And she's just like, pay attention. This is what's happening. It's in this book. Yeah. And was the wording kind of like, I won't say bad things about the church. Like it makes it sound like, of course, I would never just go talk about bad things about you. And you don't really think, I'm just curious if the wording was kind of like hidden a little bit because that we found that, or I've, I've seen that a lot in these, these things that people are signing, leaving these churches is it sounds churchy. So it's like legalese mixed with with church wording where mm-hmm. you immediately, like your gut, you've been conditioned to sign stuff like yeah. this because it's like, why wouldn't I sign this? Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm going to have integrity. Of course, I, you know, it's like, I, I'm not questioning this, but then you sign it and what you don't realize is you just signed a contract that you're going to keep your mouth shut and they're going to, they're not under that contract. They're not keeping their mouth shut. They're going to say whatever they want about you. Which mm-hmm. is the case. And so when we came on, um, there was somebody who was described, I mean, basically all you have to do is say like one or two words. And Andy would do this a lot in like groups of two or three behind closed doors about a person. And it was sort of the whole disgruntled, you know, unhealthy, you know, just one or two words that make you think, oh, I'd never listen to so-and-so because clearly they are not a reliable source. They're not emotionally okay right now. And so that was part of the conditioning where people were trying to whistleblow about something as they were leaving. And then they were so fed up by the time they either were made so miserable, they would quit or were fired, but it was never phrased that way. So there's a lot of spin. Was it, was it phrased as transitioning? Transitioning onto a new ministry. Yes. There are no sin issues here. (laughs) Yeah. All that kind of very, very standard stuff that you hear in these abuse cases. But one of the parts of the conditioning was I would often hear Andy say, if someone has a lot of people coming to talk to them about issues they see, that actually means there's something wrong with that person, which is really sad because like that's the pastoral role is to hear the laments of people and to bear one and one. How many one another's do we have in the scriptures, right? To bear one another's burdens, to share this load. That's what that's what we do. Not, not just in pastoral sense, but just as part of the church. And so that made you feel like, oh no, then I will be the person 
that's doing something wrong. So that's why you end up signing the document a lot of times like, oh, well, yeah, I would never share bad things about the church because then not only am I a bad person, I would be causing the other person to be a bad person because they were hearing what I was saying. Like, it's so gaslighting, even the conditioning of it all. But then also we had the classic Dave Ramsey toxicity of you'll get fired if you gossip. So that really controls the narrative and allows their false narratives to be believed from the stage with a microphone by the lead pastors who look like they're leading a large church with a flywheel of marketing and free mugs and free t-shirts and free concerts on Sunday and the back door is people flying out of it, both in the congregation and off staff. But as long as the flywheel keeps new people coming in and they pay for Yelp reviews and they have big billboards here in Silicon Valley and they hired someone out of Google to do their marketing for them, they know what they're doing. It's a business with butts and seats, bucks and baptisms as, you know, the metrics and the outcomes. And um, it looks like they're doing something great and grandiose. And it's part of this mission that you get swept up in. So you don't want to be that one person that says something bad because you won't be believed. So, yeah. There's this really funny YouTube video that's called GOP Jesus. Has anybody ever seen it? GOPG. It's like Jesus <laughs> if he was a pol in a political party. Oh, yes. It's I really, have seen that. Oh, it's, yes. It's amazing. And that what you just said about like the comment where, hey, if you come to me with your problems, it really reflects more on you than me, you know, you, you than anybody else. That reminds me of GOP <laughs> Jesus. I could see the GOP Jesus saying, hey, you know what? Like your illness really reflects more on you. So I'm not going to heal you. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I would say is Vanderblumen gets, they get a payday by placing Andy. So they wanted Andy to succeed because they, they want that money and like recruiting companies and what we've learned behind the scenes from people off the record is that, I mean, it's about chasing the dollars on the recruiting side, placing that candidate and getting them in the, in the, in the door as quickly as possible so that they can get their money and go on to the next one. I, mean, I don't know how that's healthy in any ways. Like, you know, I, I grew up in the SBC too. And I remember like the whole thing when you get like a pastor, it's like, you know, we're praying for a pastor, we're searching for the right person. And hopefully that was going on back then. I doubt it. That's what we grew up with, like thinking this was all about. And then when you start to see it, it's just like everything else in the corporate world. It's about being there, speed, efficiency, getting the most for your money uh, or getting the most money you can. It's just sickening. And Jay, you were on the hiring committee for our church. You saw like yeah. probably the same thing well, that happened with Saddleback is probably so similar to what you experienced bringing in our abusive pastor. Yeah, you know what I've hindsight, what I what I think was so disgusting now is like the gentleman who actually was doing um our our, I guess, vetting, which is now the I think he's the president or executive president of Acts 29. President of Acts 29. He basically is like, here are the best candidates. This is it. Like, and past these candidates, like, you're going to get, I think his exact terminology was like the B team and the C team, which even then you're like, that's not cool to say that. Yeah. Sounds very Mark Driscoll-esque. <laughs> yeah. But he, I remember like interviewing the candidates, like they were, there was such a drastic difference between all three, I felt. And like, I didn't really feel like at the first round, like we didn't really feel, I didn't personally feel any of them really fit until they coached uh, Pastor H up in the second interview and brought his wife on. And he was hitting it out of the park because I wonder why, because he probably had all the questions that we were going to answer or ask already. Uh, um, <laughs> so he was prepared for them. But, you know, I, I even then, like when we first interviewed the first three, I was like, there's got to be more than that. Like there can't be only three people 
Like there, I mean, like there's so many churches and now looking back on it, it's, it's never, it's a sleight of hand. Like it's the people they want to get in front of you. And this is it. Mm-hmm. Like these are the people and yep. you should trust our expertise and you should trust who we are. And you should trust our vetting. And that's the thing that freaks me out is like, when I think about Saddleback with Vanderblumen, I'm like, those oh, people sure. were probably told the same thing you extensive. were told, Jay. Like, we do extensive vetting. That's what you're paying yeah. for. You're paying for vetting. So, like, logically now we're like, yeah, of course you go and you interview the elder team and you interview former employees and you do all this stuff. But you're thinking we're paying potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars in Saddleback's case for that company to do that. So we we don't have to do that work. And what's yeah, happening is um, that's not happening. <laughs> no one's vetting it. What is the, I don't think there's any vetting. Like, I think the root cause of it is that like, it would be interesting if you hired someone from the outside and said, come in and see how churches hire people and then constructively give suggestions on the best way to proceed to hire the right person. Like, I think the core of how we approach hiring people in churches and faith institutions is probably backwards anyways. And in, and the way that we do influences are basically, it's like uh, the way we're doing it, we're getting the results. We're reaping the results because of the way we're doing it. So I, I don't think even if they do vetting, I think their vetting is like so backwards as is, that it wouldn't produce a different results, even if they did additional vetting, it wouldn't matter. Vetting and investigations are like two yeah. different things, yeah. right? And that's, Vanderblomen does not do investigations. It's kind of like come to me and being like, hey, you have a, a marriage and family therapy background. Can you just check and see if uh, this person has a tumor? Like, yes. right? Like I can, <laughs> I can like work through different like counseling issues and that sort of stuff that maybe are related to this, but I have no background to be able to say, yeah, it's pretty clear this person doesn't have a tumor, you know, and that's what they're asking Vanderbilt to do. That's not what they are. That's not what they are supposed to do. They don't do investigations. In fact, so another great quote, like a couple of our friends, when they tried to go and confront Andy after we were fired around other concerns they had, Andy gave the comment, yeah, we're thinking about a, maybe doing an investigation, but we're not going to use the organization that Jason Lawyer recommended because they're for the victim, not the church. I was like, I can't believe that dude said that out yeah. loud. Because they're for the victim, not the church. I was like, aren't we the church? So then I just started hashtagging, we are the church. <laughs> like, victims are <laughs> the church. I don't know what you're talking about, but we are a part of the church too. And that's just weird. Any church who has like a, like that, I think any faith institution or church that says like there could be something going on, if their appetite for an investigation is immediately like, we don't want that, that is a huge concern, right? Because oh, honestly, like everybody makes mistakes and churches are, are not perfect by any means. And they should welcome that type of transparency to say, hey, we don't know what we don't know. And if we did something, we want to know. And that's that's what I always go back to, like why like why churches are always so resistant to have people just come in and look like just come in and because it's not like there's no, it's like that. Like, it's like that when we, when we go, like when people go to therapy, when I go to therapy, like, I don't know what I don't know. I want to have somebody look mm-hmm. at my life and go like, listen to me and, and help me there because there's, that's life giving and there's change and there's good things. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that statement, Jason, that you just said super, it's not shocking, but it's, uh, I would be surprised if that statement is not something that is 
echoed, no pun intended, <laughs> attended there across multiple church boards and multiple churches uh, across yeah. the U.S. So, Well, I mean, I think we, it's important to understand the psychology of all this. And this is where I have some compassion because I fell for a lot of this in the beginning too. And our brains are not designed to live in this nuance, this like holding the difficult and the beautiful at the same time. We really are wired to want to choose one or the other. And we prefer to choose the joy and the beauty because it's better and it's easier. So of course there were good things about Andy Wood and Felipe Santos. I've never said there weren't. We have great experiences with both of them on staff and just as friends. There were great things about Echo Church. Obviously, if it was all bad, you would never go, (laughs) right? I think part of like spiritualizing it, and this is where it can be spiritually abusive, one of the values that they would put up on the wall and say all the time is contagious joy, which is great, but it doesn't allow you to bring up problems or to question or to challenge or to lament or to grieve when people leave. I mean, the the oldest survivor at Echo Church uh, from the earliest time that year, I think 21 people were run off just that one year alone. And it's like when you're, when so many people are being run off, like you don't have a chance to grieve. It's like this cutoff culture, like you'll get cut off on Facebook by some people. It'll be like a shunning. It'll be like, oh, you kind of just instinctively know if you spend time with them, you shouldn't take a picture and put it on Instagram or something. Cause you just don't, you know, like I say, sometimes I feel like people's mistress at this point because there's people at Echo Church that will still want to spend time with me, but it's like, don't tell anybody, you know, I'm still there because I'm dating someone on staff or, you know, my mom's there or whatever. Like my mom came to faith here. It's the only church she'll go to, or we love the youth group or, you know, the myriad of reasons people have. But it's like, what is it about it that makes you ashamed to just be with me and be my friend? I'm sitting here listening to your story. And so, yeah, it it has a culty aspect to it, which is disturbing. And part of the reason the narrative gets shut down so easily. But I want to have compassion for the psychology of all of it because we're talking about two pastors who have learned enough about psychology to use it to manipulate the way human brains and bodies and souls were wired to respond and they have figured out that playbook and have you and that's why it's psychologically abusive right they know the things to say that will shut down the narrative they know the things to say that will discredit that whistleblower and immediately have them be believed and blah 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 yeah that reminds me um of our conversation with Chuck DeGroat i was like hey what do you do with the fact that like people i know are actively abusing other people. Like, I know it. Yeah. Are retweeting you. I was like, what What do you do with that? He's like, I know that too. He's like, I'll see people retweet me and be like, I have people coming to me about you right now. And that's, I think, something that I've wrestled with personally. And I don't have an answer for this. I'm just throwing out, like, this is something I'm working through in my own journey right now is like the accessibility of the information now and abusers, people that are abusive have the same accessibility to this information and are then using it and darvoing the crap out of all of us. They are using it to write narratives of themselves being victims. It is just, it's wild to watch. And I know you guys see it too. We see it on Twitter all the time. One of the quotes that Jason faced in the moment of um, him saying to Felipe, I think it was in that moment, that February twenty February twenty fifth, twenty twenty one, when he said, "Hey, that meeting with Lori in December was abusive." And then he asked Jason, "Like, why are you acting like such a victim?" Like that Darvo was there in the beginning, like it was really a part of the playbook, the system. Andy was, you know, acting like 
why aren't you wanting to meet with me? Why are you, why are you doing this to me? And there was this narrative, Stacy had been a friend and I was hearing from other people, you're making Stacy cry. It's like, wait, do you realize I'm going to live under a bridge with my family? I don't have insurance. I have, you know, kids with, you know, needs of like just processing leaving Singapore and walking through COVID as teenagers. Like we're, we have, a, and now we've got this, you know, are losing their youth group and their church. And like, what just happened to their parents? Like, okay, I'm sorry, she's upset, but why, why am I now considered abusing her when her husband fired me? And I was just so confused. Like, the way Darvo is inherent in the system itself, it's why people don't speak out because they and they watch what happened to us and others and are like, heck no, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I think that's actually really helpful for people to hear. If you're currently going to a church and something went down on staff and it's murky and what you're hearing is, we're just so heartbroken that... And we loved them so much and they've just, they're hurt, but like we are hurt too to see them go. And you're, you're seeing this spin happen where you're all of a sudden feeling worse for the leaders and not understanding, like feeling kind of angry that they're being put in a position that they're sad now because they had to fire someone. If you're feeling like, this like loyalty thing build up in you. I just like encourage you to question that and press into that. What is that? And even I encourage you to reach out to the former staff members that were let go and just say like, hey, I know there's two sides to this. Also just like extend some empathy to them. Like, hey, they're saying they're hurting, but I can't imagine how much you're hurting. You've lost so much. Can I just hear from you? Like be a safe ear and then like think critically. Just just something to throw out there. Think critically, ask good questions, because I think that's really common. We see it in almost every story. You know, the, there is this narrative that's built surrounding how devastated these abusive leadership teams are, and it completely erases the people who were truly devastated by being abused, so... When I think so often in these contexts, people are afraid to reach out to the person who was fired. And that right there alone is a massive red flag. So if you're in that situation and you're like, yeah, I should probably reach out to them to get their story. And you're feeling fear for anybody else on staff to know that you did that. That's a massive red flag that you're in a toxic culture that does not value that. That's a major problem. And that should right there tell you something's not right. Yeah, there's a lot of fear and that's what feels a little culty sometimes. There is a lot of like grandiosity on the inside. We were often told this is the best church around. And so you kind of instinctively thought, well, dang, like if this is as good as it gets, why am I trying to leave, you know? And if you care about ministry and the church, which we do, we love the church. We want to be a part of this ecclesia and helping her grow and flourish. You know, this is the heart of most of us on a staff at a church. Um, if you're being told, well, yeah, everybody else is just like your grandma's church, how boring. And like, oh, there's just a bunch of like, it's dying. And in the Silicon Valley, that's true. Everywhere you look, churches are closing their doors. There are little churches that have not kind of made it past a certain generation. And so that's the lens they give you. And so then you feel like, well, I guess this is as good as it gets. And you're not going to do anything to jeopardize that. And if you see this sort of rising star now that's gone to Saddleback and the narratives that get spun and the grandiosity that got spun about God choosing this man, it's almost like 
the ends justify the means. Like whatever he's done to get here doesn't really matter. I've actually had people use the words on staff that met with me afterwards and believed my abuse was real um, and say, oh, you were just collateral damage. And it's like, well, think about that. Like, is that is that okay? Would Jesus be sitting here with me right now being like, my daughter, you're just collateral damage? I don't think so. I think Jesus would weep. I think God weeps. When you read Lamentations, when you read the Psalms, when you, I'm in Jeremiah right now, when you read Job, there's so much feeling in the heart of God. There's a, there's just, it, we have so gaslit the church in certain situations to be like, God's this very hard-hearted, doesn't give a dang about all the things going on. But no, God is not abusive. God is good. God loves us. And God is a mother hen gathering her chicks around her warm heartbeat. And so when you are an abuse victim of a pastor in a church, God weeps like Jesus wept over Lazarus. Like it, there is a lot of feeling there and it's okay to feel those things. That was really well said. This is a perfect segue to talk about NDAs. Because as you all remember, before Jesus died, he asked the disciples to sign NDAs. <laughs> and yes. they did. If yeah. you don't remember that, it's in there. So. Yeah. So I, I hate NDAs. Um, I hate them. And so um, from a corporate perspective, I mean, I've worked in the corporate world my entire life. Um, I'm very aware of NDAs. And you know, corporations use them similar to churches. Tying in the spiritual aspect of on the churches, uh, it makes it, in my opinion, even more wicked and coercive and harmful. So can you both talk to us about the work you're doing with hopefully helping people that are under NDAs or uh, going through that process? Because we'd love to hear it. Yeah, I think after not signing ours, and also like Jason mentioned, I had read A Church Called Tove by Dr. Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger and that that you know book of if you've read it and you should read it it's a must read was born out of their experience of Willow Creek and being people who said wait the Nancys are speaking out and Vonda Dyer like the, these women tell the truth and we're reading it in the Chicago Tribune you know walking through all of that and then helping the church understand NDAs um, and then giving <laughs> being given the one we didn't sign and then having other people come to us very quickly after our abuse and telling us they had NDAs and having other people on staff start to look back through their documents and be like, oh my gosh, I signed one too. And I didn't know. I was just trying to get out of there and move on. And I was miserable. And and then someone being offered one after us and, and her refusing to sign as well. Like we just have had so many in our situation. And, um, and I think courage is contagious like that. Like it takes one person just to be like, heck no, this is, this is it. This is a line in the sand. You don't get to do this to image bearers, to children of God, to silence their voices. And I also had interviewed Dr. Diane Lamberg around the same time I interviewed um, Scott and Laura. And her book, Redeeming Power, starts off with talking about the voice that God, when God creates humanity, God creates us to have a voice, to have agency, being made in God's image. Part of it is that we have a voice and to silence the voice of an image bearer is abusive. It's to use someone wrongly. We want the image bearers of God to give us their perspective because that is healthy and spiritually healthy. 
So in its nature, in its essence, an NDA to me is a spiritually abusive document for a church to give. Now you can couch it in all kinds of language, which Echo has done, that they're trying to protect passwords. We know they lock you out of the system, so there's no way you could get access to that anyway. And there are other legal things from what we understand that protect those things. What they're doing is silencing the narrative and controlling the narrative so that their false narrative can be spread very easily and they can discredit the whistleblower and no one reaches out. One of the earliest survivors of church of the abuse at Echo Church has an NDA. You know, there was a goodbye party for them that was like, they're going on to this new ministry. And that goodbye party all by itself was so traumatic. They had to do EMDR therapy just for the goodbye party. And there's many, many stories of like EMDR therapy with meetings and things like that. But outside of therapy, they're not really able to tell their stories. And Jason and I come out of like the years we spent 18 years ago doing tsunami relief in Indonesia. And I translated for a trauma therapist who's world renowned, who had worked the Columbine shooting. He has a trauma therapy specialty for children. And he had been in Bislan, Russia after the Chechnyan rebels shot up the school there. And he came to help and I translated for him. And I remember lesson one was telling your story to many people who will believe you and empathize is how you heal, no matter what age you are. And all we're going to do is sit and listen and ask questions and believe and empathize. And that's all, that's our job. Like it was like, you can help people heal by just that most basic of things. So I knew that an NDA would not let us heal from our trauma. And I still stand by. That's part of why it's spiritually and psychologically abusive to make people not do the very thing that would help them heal. We don't have our NDA, so we can speak out. The Echo Survivors Group has put out a petition for people to sign to get Echo Church to release the NDAs they don't respond to many things that are put out there. They'll have a lot of phrases that say, we're returning evil with good. I guess I'm evil or speaking out is evil or using my voice to tell the truth and ask for transparency and some sunshine to disinfect this and open the curtain is evil. I don't really know what they're referring to, although I have been referred to as Jezebel. They've had someone on staff that came you know, privately, like I said, people just come privately to me for the most part and said that they got in trouble for not praying for me as if I'm evil. They don't believe that about me. But the whole returning evil with good, good is we're silent. We don't, we don't say anything. We don't respond on social media. Contagious joy. Yes. So silence is part of the culture. NDAs are consistent with the culture. If you gossip, you'll get fired. Don't question just smile when you're on stage and make it look like everything's fine. Whatever you do on stage, just make sure there's a big smile on your face because there's going to be a lot of people getting fired around here. So make sure you're contagious joy. That way people will never question. So silence is a value that permeates the entire culture. So NTAs are consistent with how things run. However, we continue to ask for them to be revoked because if you have no dirt, if you are completely clean, completely innocent, and you've never done anything wrong, why will you not pull back the curtain and open the windows and let us all see what's there? If you are completely clean and you've been through eight levels of vetting and Saddleback knows you're fine, why can't we know exactly what happened? And the reason is clear. The pattern is clear in all of the stories I've heard. Going back to his breakthrough church in Texas, three stories came to me from there. Friends from college. Like these are, the pattern is clear. You get put into this game, you don't know you're in and the pattern is the same. And so that's why the NDA's, can't be released, but we have over 1,300 signatures at this point. Um, if you would like to sign it, you can go to change.org slash NDA. I think it is. We'll probably link it in the show notes, but yeah. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes for sure. And I just want to like hit 
this off ahead of time because I know that like when you started pushing for this, when you started saying like, here's this petition, we're requesting that people get released from their NDAs. One, you guys are some of the only people Mm -hmm. that can say that out loud because people are under NDAs. So they can't say like, hey, let me out. Or at least Mm -hmm. they don't feel like they can. They might actually be able to, but they don't feel that they can because there's so much fear. There was a response, I feel like. And it was like, we're not keeping anybody from speaking. Like, they tried to, like, do this weird thing where they didn't actually say, sure, you're all released from NDAs. It was just this nebulous, vague thing that sounded good enough for enough people, I feel like. So can you guys explain what they said? Yeah, Uh, They basically got a woman who came on, well, she wasn't even hired on staff originally. I don't know currently if she's getting a salary because I haven't really kept up with things, but her husband was hired to come on staff as I was leaving at Overlapped just a couple weeks, enough to know, like, I don't want to share my story with them because I'm currently being abused. And anybody that gets close to me gets interrogated. Like that became clear in the meeting I had a dissociative experience. So I didn't want this person's first few weeks to be fraught with that. And so I I didn't share my story. And I also thought, you know, I remember being in the honeymoon phase two. And when I came on, there was a person described as disgruntled employee, unhealthy. And I didn't listen to them either because that was enough to make me think something's not right with them. And so I'm pretty sure that narrative had already been spread about me to this person. So I didn't share my story, but the wife of this person was given the task of being in the video that came and did the statement to respond to the many signatures we'd gotten on the petition to release the NDAs. This person knows has never heard my story. I'm pretty sure if you understand anything about how abuse works, if you're in the circle of someone who's abusing and has allegations of abuse against them, just stay curious because you are one of two people. You are either being abused or you are being groomed as an ally to deny the abuse or cover it up. And I have been both. So I know both roles. If you've been raised by a narcissistic parent, you probably understand you were either the golden child or the scapegoat. I've been both in the situation under the leadership of these two men. And so started off more as a golden child, and that's a pattern in a lot of stories, and then quickly became a scapegoat when I questioned. That's also part of the pattern. So yeah, they put this woman out there to do the video, given her a script, and like, oh, I've never seen anything wrong here. This is very consistent with when we went to the board. And by the way, when we say the board of Echo Church, both of us worked on staff for a year and a half, and we didn't know who the board was. Also a red flag. And so when we were, I had already been fired, we were trying to figure out who they were. Well, it turns out two of our good friends were on there. And why did we not know? Because silence is the highest value, right? And so a lot of secrets, a lot. And if you know anything about abuse of any kind, secrets are part of it. We were told when we met with the board, and you can hear part of that on the podcast, that they had done their own little investigation. What, within like two days? And all these men work in like corporate jobs. Like, how did you have time? And wait, did you get Grace Ministries? No, we did our own. And it's, I don't know, did they ask two people on staff, hey, how's, do you, what do you think about Andy? Oh, he's cool. Okay, great. Awesome. 100% cleared. It's not, it feels a little like the Vanderbilt investigation, faux investigation, where if you talk to somebody who's being currently paid by the one accused of abusing their power, who has been groomed to be silent or hired because they're silent and don't question authority or all the things that are very psychologically abusive, it's just a never a great idea to ask someone who's currently on the payroll. 
even in the Saddleback situation, if they had did come to any of the Echo staff and say, hey, wh- what's it like to work for Andy? There might be two reasons somebody would respond, he's great. One is they're being abused by him and they want him to go. And they're like, he's going to be off my back now. Or they really have been groomed to be this ally that always covers up for him because you're being told you would be nothing without me. Look what I did for you. I gave you this role. All the things that are psychologically manipulative that happen. So yeah, um, this person was put on there in a video saying, I've never seen anything. This is a great church. And and I'm sure they didn't because I saw multiple sides of Andy Wood and I saw multiple sides of Felipe Santos, who, by the way, I've been friends since high school in Detroit. I think that that felt like they used this woman as a human shield. The person who should have been on there should have been Felipe Santos, and he was not making the statement. He likes to present himself as the good cop, and that was what I fell for, hook, line, and sinker, for a really long time until he was dragging me into the office of the man he was supposed to be protecting me from, and they flanked me on both sides and abused me for a solid hour. So I fell for that one like many of us have. That reminds me of, um, we had a storyteller who was an assistant pastor and he said the lead pastor, very similar to Andy. He was the, the good, the good cop, basically. Like I Mm. put the knife in slowly, but I still, I I was still doing the wounding. I was just doing it in a way that people didn't understand that it was happening to them. That sounds like Felipe to me a little bit. It's like, yeah, slowly. And then he gets you in the office with Andy and he's like, and you felt that turn real intimately. Felipe is the lead pastor of their Echo Church now. Now mm-hmm. officially, yeah. So yeah. the narrative is, oh, Andy really wasn't so great, but Felipe is great. You can trust him. But I just stand by like they both abused me. Yeah, for some people who have stayed behind after hearing our story, they want to put it all on Andy. Andy's gone. Felipe is now going to make all the culture better. And in fact, some people that have met with Felipe, so it's like about our story and the concerns. And he basically has thrown Andy under the bus. Not whether Andy knows that or not. I highly doubt he does. But he's like, yeah, Andy was pretty authoritarian, but we're not going to be that way. I mean, again, I just go back to like for Echo Church. I, I have no association with Echo Church at all. Honestly, I didn't even know what, what it was until I met both of you. And it's like, if you have nothing to hide, then hire somebody to come in and look at everything because you yeah. want to be healthy and you don't want to hurt other people, then just bring someone in. Not somebody you know. Bring somebody who does this professionally and mm-hmm. open the books. Because you're, you'll, if you don't have anything to hide, then you're willing to know what your blind spots are so that you can, so that you can heal and bring healing to your uh, community and to the people that have left your church and the people that are, are at your church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those were our two asks, and they've continued to be. That's what we asked the board. Yeah, no, we asked the board and the, like right away when we met with them. That's what we told Saddleback. Please pass this on. Echo Church needs a Grace Ministries or something of that nature, a Wade Mullen, somebody that understands how to deal with this. And then Saddleback Andy also needs it now. They both yeah, need exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they both need it. And the Andy, that was our two ask was for, you know, an invest, a actual investigation from people who do this well. And then um, for Dr. Diane Lamberg or Chuck DeGroote to be the ones to give counseling to these two men and they don't get released back into ministry until they get the green light from a professional who understands abuse in the church. Because you can you can fake anything with any therapist, especially narcissistic behaviors. Well, I mean, and just look at the pattern, how often we see this. We see this at the Village Church with Chandler, which is like our wheelhouse a little bit, Acts 29, not a little bit, a lot of it. 
Acts 29 is our wheelhouse. <laughs> and he has this random text conversation happen with this woman. Guess who they didn't bring in? Anybody that's a professional in this. They brought in a boutique law firm to investigate. It's like none of these people are actually doing the work to open the windows. And like Jay said, if you're if you have nothing to hide, if you walk with integrity, then you are don't care. You're going to do whatever you need to do to shine light on the truth. It's just it's heartbreaking and I'm so sorry. And if you're going to Saddleback right now, if you're tithing there, ask some questions. Ask some questions and you're entitled to ask those questions. Yeah, releasing the financials is one of the main reasons people left after us. Because when they had questions, I they told us on staff we weren't al- allowed to tell our people how much we made. I don't know if that's not legal. I, I think it might not be, but double check that. I think they're putting a law out right now that that's not yeah. legal to enforce that. So a lot of people were shocked to hear how little I was being paid in one of the most expensive real estates in the nation and the highest cost of living. With three teenagers and trying to rebuild a life after Singapore and having just gotten rid of our stuff and come with suitcases, you know, like we had to start from scratch, no car, no house, no nothing. So people were kind of shocked how little they were were paying me. And I, as soon as I got fired, I was like, well, I can just tell because people asked. And then they went and questioned Annie and Felipe and the board separately got separate answers. And a, there was a huge cry out for them to release their financials and they won't. They'll say things on the website like, come to us if you have questions. But that's a chance for them to abuse you because so many people got psychologically abused, gaslit, emotionally abused, spiritually abused by these two pastors they were expecting to shepherd them when they said, hey, we just want to see the financials. We're tithing and being very generous. And they were like, we don't have to show you. And they want you so desperately to be in those one-off meetings. So desperately. Mm -hmm. And you should not have to be in a one-off meeting. You should be able to send an email and they should be able to send you it. And another thing with that that I'm thinking of for people to ask questions of, I'm thinking Saddleback right now. If you're at Saddleback, this is for you. They might send you a lump sum of salaries and it's going to look like an appropriate number or maybe even a shockingly big number to you to see it based on the number of employees there are that is not going to be indicative of the pay of the employees you need to ask for a line by line because oftentimes what they're doing is a huge salary for the top one or two positions and then the employees underneath them are making barely minimum wage so i just encourage you to press into that if you're at saddleback we only have just like a couple more minutes I want to pivot for just one second and just hear how you guys are doing right now and how you're moving forward. Do you want me to jump in first, Lori? Yeah, I, I would say we're, I mean, it's, we're two years, we're hitting our two-year anniversary mark. I feel like we're... Yeah, this, is it this month? Yeah, February 25th it would be the would be the anniversary of the phone call. It'd be the first week of March would be the actual two-year anniversary of being fired. In so many ways, we're doing really well, but a lot of that's because of a lot of hard work that we've done. Um, and it's not just been one one thing that has uh, been the most helpful. We have friends that have come around us that believe us and have been incredibly supportive. We had a church that actually paid for our therapy that has been incredibly helpful. In fact, they gave- An SBC church, FYI. Yeah, they gave <laughs> six sessions initially and then realized, okay, they need more. There's 10 more sessions. That has been uh, amazing. We actually joined a, there's an incredible organization called Caneo Center in Puerto Rico that has cohorts for pastors and ministers who go through difficult things like this, but it's a huge variety, not just this kind of stuff. 
were offered to go through that cohort, myself and Lori as well. That piece has been unbelievable going through material. Chuck DeGroote actually is one of the ones that helped put the material together. So the therapy, getting involved in this cohort, getting a spiritual director, and being around a group of friends that could be attuned to our story as we've shared it a thousand times. If we begin to unravel some things and share over and over, those pieces have been incredibly healing. But we still have nightmares at times. We still sometimes get up in the morning and like, I had an echo dream last night. Or um, someone reaches out to us and you, you just suddenly feel anger. Like, Lord, why is this still going on? Why are there still people getting hurt? And then, of course, there's your kids. You know, you've got your kids looking at you saying, how in the world can I walk into a church? I'm just afraid we're going to get hurt. So there's, in so many ways, we're doing great. But this is a, it's a long journey ahead for both of us. But if if you're in a space like we are, it takes a lot of time, effort, but it's worth it. It's worth it. But don't feel like you've got to get over it quickly. It'll take as long as it takes. I agree with that. I, I intentionally knew in the beginning, I need a village. And I don't know who they all are, but I cannot walk this road by myself. And I think that having grown up in Latin America and lived in Asia for 20 years, like I don't have a lot of individualism in my culture. And I knew that I needed to build my village. I um, quickly, I was in Joe Saxton's leadership training, monthly kind of stuff. Uh, I had just read her book and it kind of helped me understand something I was going through at, like as it was kind of happening. So she's been great over the last two years to just say like, you know, it's okay like to be upset. It's so, And I just needed that like, yeah, this was wrong. Like, you know, and so there's that like leadership component. There was a woman who had gone through something similar in a church and I became an Enneagram coach. And I still on my wall have the post-it notes that describe an Enneagram eight, all those words. She's like, you need to see those because they try to take away who you are by tone policing you and, you know, acting like to whistleblow, you had to be a perfect person to say anything or you'd be discredited that he, he gets a free pass to do all these things wrong. Well, I guess male leaders just do unethical things. No big deal, but you, you have to be perfect. Well, that's not fair. You know, just be yourself, be who God made you to be. And then I had a career coach who actually is uh, one of Jason's best friends from high school, Eric Woodard, shout out if you need a career coach, he's incredible. And he would always be like, no, this is who you are. He sent me books to read and said, you are this person and you were made for greatness. And like, you have something really great out there. And I've gotten a couple jobs since the working at Echo Church that are, thank God, you know, this career coach helped me and learn to write a resume. I didn't know how to do that outside of a ministry setting. I needed help. Like Jason said, the cohorts, I mean, so many things, but I would shout out to Megan and Victoria who now live in London. They brought us a meal for 10 months straight on Wednesday nights, enough to feed our family and sit with us and have leftovers. And it was every chance to share what became their story eventually too, of being abused and then leaving. And we were church in a way that was really beautiful on Wednesday nights together. Yeah. And then I would just say the sacred community of survivors of Echo Church, as well as some other churches you know, now I've had since going out publicly some stories from Andy's mega church pastor buddies where some of this is going on with them too. And that's why they scratch his back on stage is because they're doing some of the same stuff and sharing notes and playbooks. And so it's heartbreaking, but there is a very sacred community. We are the church. Hmm. The survivors are still the church, whether we identify in that way or not. Like there's a beauty 
in our sharing and our one anothering with each other. And I found it to be a very, very sacred space. And I'm so grateful to be co-healers with so many survivors out there. So if you're one of them, feel free to reach out over Twitter and I'd love to know who you are. You know, one of the things that, you know, we talked about not signing the NDA and like, you know, celebrating those that don't sign the NDA. The thing I'm always so cautious about is I don't want to care anyone to carry any shame or guilt that did sign the NDA. I feel like we had some unique circumstances, but the both of us going through it together, 20 plus years of ministry experience, a number of different things that that really convicted us not to sign it. If you are someone that did sign an NDA, no shame, no guilt. Um, if you're if you're in a situation right now where you're having to decide and you are you know, needing to provide for your family and those types of things. Please don't hear from us that we're, you know, think any less of you or any of that. None of you need to carry any shame because these are incredibly difficult situations and everybody is in unique circumstances in each situation. So just want to make sure that anybody that has been in that situation or is in it right now, um, that we're not judging you and carry no shame uh, for what you have to do. Yeah, that's really good. And we'll link our episode about NDAs with uh, attorney Robert Callahan as well in the show notes. He actually offered for people to reach out to him and he gives some really good pointers for if you're being handed an NDA right now, like what to do, uh, your rights. And those are things that you don't really understand or know in that moment. So just I encourage you to listen and get an attorney. Always get an attorney. Every time. A lot of them will do free consultations. Do it. Do not sign anything without getting an attorney first. (laughs) Yeah, I wish somebody had given me that advice. I was so afraid. Like people who are good Christians don't sue the church, which is why we signed that, you know, severance agreement. Like, well, we have no desire to do that. But I don't think that this will stop if you expect the church in in a situation like this to be the ones to speak out from within it because they're being either abused or groomed to be, you know, allies. And so... This is why the Department of Justice has had to get involved with the SBC, because the SBC, I love these people. I love many of the people in leadership, and yet the system isn't fixing itself. So we've had to get the Department of Justice involved. And in a church like Echo, yeah, I think that it's going to take people doing something legal, because the church is like going, this is like 15 years of the same stuff that just keep happening and keep getting buried, and people just walk away with NDAs and just want to move on with their lives. They would, we've had ordained pastor go work at Target, you know, anything besides working here. It's just, it's that bad. Walking through years and years of trauma, EMDR therapy. So many of us go to the same therapist here. She's got like a full-time job. If you just go and say Echo Church, she knows. Like, But yeah, I think that it's, it's, a, it's like an intense experience for so many people. I wish somebody had told me to go to the EEOC right away because the statute of limitations has already passed on some of it. But I was, we were just trying to pick up the pieces of our lives. But now I really believe to stop it, we need to like document it. Glassdoor had a review of the former name of Echo Church that if I had read it, but it was called South Bay Church back then. And there's a very scathing Glassdoor review, which people have been like, you could have written that. I wish somebody had told me it's why I speak out. I feel like we need to speak out and share what we wanted to hear, write the book somebody should have written that we could have read you know, shout it out because I don't want anybody else to be abused. And I get really tired of hearing the same story from my, the one who abused me, the two men over and over and over again. It's really exhausting to keep hearing it. And it's just like, stop. Why is the serpents innocent as doves? I never thought I needed that verse for 
inside the church. I always thought it was for outside the church. And I think that's part of the challenge. It's so hard. Even as you're saying, get legal counsel, get this, get that. The challenge is, is when you're first starting out, it's you're still so gaslit. You're, you, you can't even imagine that even what you're feeling and experiencing is completely true. And sometimes by the time you're actually realizing it, it's too late. They've cut you out of email. They've cut you out of this. You have, you know, that you've agreed to them recording conversations. So I would just say for people, if, if you're starting to wonder and have questions, it's going to feel, you're going to feel guilty, but a few things you need to do, start making documentation, document, 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 pull back texts, emails, never agree to a recorded meeting with someone, get a lawyer, have someone help you walk through that. You're, again, you're going to feel guilty, but if you're in a healthy space, they're going to understand and they're going to treat you right. And if they're not, there's, there's the problem.